In a Swiss lab in 1869, a young scientist named Johann Friedrich Miescher is doing some unpleasant but important work. He's collected a bunch of used bandages from a local surgical clinic. And his plan is to identify the different proteins in the white blood cells that are on the bandages. But he ends up finding far more than that. He discovers a substance inside the cell nuclei that behaves differently than any other protein. He calls it nuclein. Nuclein would later be renamed deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. He didn't know it at the time, but Miescher had just isolated the key to human life. With the investment of countless hours, dollars, and the innovations of thousands of other scientists, this work would become one of the most important discoveries in medical history. This is Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. I'm Shannon Murphy. On this show, we track the surprising and sometimes even unlikely moments of investment and innovation that led to medicine's biggest breakthroughs. I mean, you have to be hopelessly optimistic and, you know, be willing to be seen as a little bit crazy to invest in something that has between a zero and 5% probability of success. Today, the scientists who cracked our genetic code, their courage in the face of failure and adversity, started a revolution in the world of genetic medicine. We're going to begin with a company on the cutting edge of this industry. Beam Therapeutics raised $260 million at the beginning of 2021. My name is uh, Pino Ceramella. I'm the chief scientific officer and president of Beam Therapeutics. And Beam is a precision genetic company that essentially does gene editing primarily with uh, the base editing technology, which is a next generation gene editing technology. This gene editing technology has the potential to help countless people with devastating genetic disorders, things like sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, or hemophilia and maybe even make these painful and debilitating conditions a thing of the past. I have four daughters myself, and I firmly believe that genetic medicines will be part of the medicines of the future for them and for, hopefully, their children. And I think what base editing is enabling is providing... That dream is becoming closer to reality, I would say. That huge investment Beam received in early 2021 definitely helped bring that reality forward. And it's already starting to pay off. By the fall of 2021, Beam got the go-ahead to proceed with its first human trial using base editing. According to Pino, base editing could be the most precise form of gene therapy ever seen. You can think about base editing a little bit like a pencil, where you have an eraser, you find the sequence that you want to change, you erase it, and then you rewrite it with the new sequence. And so it's a much more direct way of, of making the change. Pino's pencil eraser analogy is evocative. But what exactly does it mean? We'll bring Pino back a bit later. But first, let's get down to some basics, like what is DNA? So the analogy that I really like as um, somebody who works on gene editing and genome engineering is that I like to think of DNA really as, as the computer code that runs us. Neville Sanjana is a core faculty member at the New York Genome Center, where he heads his own lab. He's here to help us wrap our heads around this complex but fundamental building block of life. 
kind of like a programming language that runs you. And, you know, the programming language that runs this computer, this laptop that's in front of me, uses a code that's based on ones and zeros or binary code. DNA uses kind of a different fundamental unit, so it doesn't have a one-zero binary code, but it actually uses four, uh, what we would call primitives, four bases, A, T, C, and G, which is shorthand for describing those fundamental building block chemical structures of DNA. And so those A's, T's, C's, and G's um, are arranged in particular ways, just like ones and zeros in your iPhone or in your laptop. And those particular arrangements is what enables the DNA to specify something like eye color or to influence the height of an individual. Now, let's do a quick bit of time travel through the evolution of our understanding of that code. Back in 1869, Johann Miescher could never have imagined that the nucleon he discovered could be so powerful. But in the 1950s, a major breakthrough happened in our understanding of DNA. The structure of DNA is actually kind of a fascinating discovery in that I think, uh, even though it's something famous that we all read about, it kind of is a good example of how discovery is done in science in many ways. The first ever image of DNA was captured in an X-ray, and that helped other scientists prove the double helix structure that we now associate with DNA. You need both the theoreticians and the experimentalists. You need to collect the data and you need to be able to build models and interpret the data. And that's not just true of the discovery of the structure of DNA, but really through much of biology and science in general. And so um, those two expertise came together to give us what we now recognize as the double helix, which is kind of this fundamental shape that all of our DNA is, which is two anti-parallel strands of those building blocks, A's, T's, C's, and G's. And understanding the structure of DNA opened the door to the study of genetics and gene therapy. Scientists are able to start sequencing individual genes and small parts of the human genome. Sequencing a genome or sequencing DNA just means reading out those letters, A's, T's, C's, and G's, to get a complete readout, basically, of somebody's genome. And so we use some very standard preparation methods to get that DNA out and then use sequencing machines to be able to convert the physical DNA, the, the, the chemical DNA, into something that we can read on a computer and be able to see and look for, say, mutations and things like this. Another big discovery would come along two decades later. Jim Wilson begins his work in the 1970s. He's a star in the gene therapy galaxy. That's Dr. Paul Offit. He's the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of the recent book, You Bet Your Life, The Long and Risky History of Medical Innovation. There's a whole chapter in his book dedicated to Jim Wilson. When Jim Wilson started, I think gene therapy was in its infancy. He made gene therapy real in many ways. Back in the 1970s, Jim Wilson was studying a rare genetic disorder called Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. The symptoms are awful. Young people with this disorder engage in compulsive acts of self-harm. Jim was the first to prove that Lesch-Nyhan was caused by a single gene deficiency. And he thought, well, if we could just put that gene back into these kids, they might be cured. In 1980, Jim read about an amazing breakthrough at a lab at Stanford University. 
a pair of biochemists had taken a gene from an E. coli bacterium and injected it into monkey cells. This caused the monkey cells to produce a bacterial protein, essentially rewriting the DNA of the monkeys. Jim was determined to do the same thing in human cells. Fast forward to the 1990s, and Jim Wilson's the head of the Institute for Human Gene Therapy at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's trying to treat a rare genetic disorder called OTC deficiency. Patients lack an enzyme in the liver that allows us to convert food into energy. Well, well, so what he was working with initially was adenovirus factors, a replication defective adenovirus factor, which is really the same thing that you see now with the Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine. So this is a, an adenovirus is a common cold virus. You can genetically engineer it so it can't reproduce itself. Therefore, it can't reproduce itself in cells and cause disease. But it can you can also genetically engineer it so it contains the gene that somebody needs. Unfortunately, one of the major risks of this adenovirus is that it can cause a dangerous immune reaction. And Jim Wilson went very slowly with sort of lower doses and then somewhat higher doses and then somewhat higher doses. And each of the people that he, he went for, he took his steps very carefully. But despite the care taken, one of the patients in Jim Wilson's trial reacted so badly to the treatment that he died. A 19-year-old named Jesse Gelsinger. His death was a tragedy, and it almost derailed the entire study of gene therapy. The FDA suspended the University of Pennsylvania's gene therapy program and started investigating dozens of other programs across the country. Jim Wilson stepped down as director of the Institute for Human Gene Therapy in 2002, but he didn't step away from the science. Instead of just being made nervous by his experience, he was made wise by his experience. Fortunately, an old mentor of his named Tachi Yamato was the head of research and development at the pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline. Tachi encouraged Jim to figure out what had gone wrong so that he could learn how to prevent it. More importantly, Tachi Yamato encouraged GlaxoSmithKline to make a $29 million investment in Jim Wilson's lab. That investment led to work that would ultimately save many, many lives. What Jim Wilson did was he he set it upon himself to figure out what had gone wrong with Jesse Gelsinger, knowing that that knowledge would advance the field. He figured out that what happened with Jesse Gelsinger is he made a an immunological protein called interleukin-6, which overwhelmed him. It was an aberrant immune system. And at the time, even if he'd known that, there's nothing he would have been able to do about it because there wasn't, at the time, a monoclonal antibody commercially available to uh, neutralize the effects of interleukin-6. That only came up later. But when it did happen later, and when the same sort of reaction happened later, then we were ready. Then the gene therapy crowd was ready to be able to give that monoclonal antibody to save a life of this little girl named Emily Whitehead. Uh, what she, the gene therapy she had was something called CAR T therapy, this chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapy, where what you do is you take people's T cells out of their body, you re-engineer them so that they can kill cancer cells, and then you put them back in the person's body. But that too can be associated with a, an overwhelming immunological reaction, and that's what happened to her. But this time we were ready. Emily Whitehead was a success story, and when her gene therapy treatment worked, her photo was everywhere. She was on the Today Show. She met with President Obama at the White House. Nowhere, however, do you see the pictures of Jesse Gelsinger because we are only comfortable celebrating our successes, not our failures, even though it's invariably our failures that lead to those successes. Although the cost of failure is high, 
The potential benefit of these successes is enormous. And where would we be if Jim Wilson had just given up, hadn't tried to understand the reason for his failure? We'd be worse off. I mean, his work with adeno-associated viruses that could target specific sites was seminal work, critical work, for which he should be highly honored. And to his credit, he just stood up and moved forward, despite the fact that he was basically shunned by his colleagues. It's very easy to crawl into a hole when something like that happens, but he didn't, which I think is a testament to the strength of his character. This show is all about the alchemy that's needed to move medical innovation forward. So you know that strength of character wasn't the only element that took us from the discovery of a nuclein to gene therapy and then to gene editing and the groundbreaking work you heard about at the top of the show from Pino Sharamella and his company, Beam Therapeutics. That comes with the investment of many more hours of work, resources, and courage. There's certainly times when road bumps with innovation, fits and starts are a problem because you're dealing with human lives directly. Will Sevish is Jeffrey's healthcare desk strategist. You know, you figure it out through either, you know, modification, scientific innovation, changes in application of the technology. And because of it, because of the change, because of the roadblock and what you learned, you know, it eventually becomes a viable therapy. But it can take years of work and research to move on from a failure. I mean, you have to be hopelessly optimistic and, you know, be willing to be seen as a little bit crazy to invest in something that has between a zero and 5% probability of success. GSK had the optimism to support Jim Wilson's work, even in the face of a major failure. And Jim's persistence paved the way for more work on gene therapy and gene editing. And there was another major investment made way back in the early 1990s that was starting to pay off. The Human Genome Project. Here's Neville Sanjana again. I think what many people would point to as one of the most impressive achievements, you know, kind of impressive human achievements, period, really, was the sequencing of the human genome, which at least the draft genome was completed about 20 years ago. And that really gave us, for the first time, a, a comprehensive playbook to all the the genes, a comprehensive overview of all the genes. And so for people that maybe have um, disorders of the genome, people who have mutations in genes that cause diseases, you know, it was a little bit hard to kind of piece things together. But once you have the sequence of all the genes, you have a really a much more comprehensive understanding. And that's where people really start thinking about, you know, what is the future of genomic medicine? Now that we understand the genes, we understand the mutations that might cause disease. We'll be hearing much more about the Human Genome Project later this season. It was an ambitious and expensive project that was initially met with a lot of skepticism. But that hopeless optimism ultimately paid off. Which brings us back to Pino Sharamella's pencil eraser at Beam Therapeutics. While Jim's work was centered on replacing a cell's missing gene or enzyme, Beam's base editing technique actually rewrites the gene itself and the implications are huge. You see, potentially, gene editing could have the ability to be a single treatment that would then last for uh, the rest of one's life if things are done well and, and obviously if things prove as we hope they will. 
in the case uh, of some of the, the treatment that we are developing. So uh, it's essentially options, options for patients, potentially options where uh, there were none before. And there are so many factors that led to their ability to do this now. The ability to sequence the genome with the speed and now, frankly, the efficiency and cost that, that we have has really opened up the opportunity to develop that in-depth knowledge so that now we can go and manipulate very specific and bespoke sequences of gene. And although BEAM is just in the early stages of human trials, Pino is confident that the investment in base editing will lead to even more advancement. So now we are at a place where it's no longer an existential question, you know, does base editing work? I think the totality of the data we have would suggest, of course, base editing works, and, and we are very hopeful that there will be a therapy with base editing in the future. If the existential question, as Pino says, is taken care of, it's the capital investment that can help the technology reach its full potential. And that's one of the key components of the alchemy behind scientific innovation. It all comes down to people. We've heard about many different people whose risk-taking, innovation, and investment over the past 150 years have led to the incredible gene-editing capabilities of today. And the success of so much innovation ultimately comes down to the right people coming together at the right time, which Pino says has been the case for BEAM. Absolutely. There is nothing more important than the people that make a company and the people that make basically a community of individuals that come together to do what is a truly a multidisciplinary sport, uh, which is drug discovery. It takes many, many different skills, people, passions, experiences that need to come together in a a cohesive, uh, I call it the engine, and, and it needs to, all the parts need to be able to work together in, in unison to be able to do that. And these discoveries wouldn't be possible if not for all the risks taken and all the what-if moments we've heard throughout the episode. What if Johan Miescher hadn't spent quality time in his lab with a bunch of used bandages? What if those 1950s X-ray scientists hadn't discovered the double helix structure? What if Jim Wilson hadn't stayed so tenacious in the face of tragedy? And what if investors hadn't had faith that we could learn from and improve upon our mistakes? It's that magic mix of ingenuity, perseverance, courage, and investment that leads to the medical breakthroughs that will change our futures. That's hopeless optimism at work. You've been listening to Invisible Forces, an original podcast from Jeffries. I'm Shannon Murphy. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. See you in two weeks. This podcast may not be distributed or reproduced. The podcast is not research, a recommendation, or an offer to buy or sell. It is provided for information only. Views constitute best judgment as of the published date and may change without notice. The data used is not independently verified. No representation is made as to accuracy, including as to future events or reasonableness of assumptions. Views are those of the individuals identified. Jeffries and its agents are not liable for damage from the podcast. Jeffries is not providing advice as to legal, tax, accounting, or other matters. Additional disclaimers are on jeffries.com.